is a great morning to be in the house of the Lord together. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 22. We're actually going to finish up the text of Revelation this morning, which I'm very excited about. And then next week, we'll do a bird's eye view recap of the entire book. So be here next week because that's going to fit all of the pieces together. We've gone through it in pretty good detail coming all the way through, and we're going to wrap it up next week. We're going to fit all of those pieces together. In chapter 21, we saw this eternal state of affairs and the eternal place, and the state and the place are inextricably connected. Um, In this city... There's no death, no sorrow, no crying. God is there in the midst of his people. And then in the first half of chapter 22, we saw John's description of the interior of the city. We saw this river of water of life proceeding from the throne of God. And it's flowing through the middle of the street that literally is the main thoroughfare of the city. This river is flowing right through. And this tree of life produces fruit that preserves and invigorates the health of the nations. In this city, there's no more curse. Everyone will serve God according to their unique abilities. And most importantly, and the one thing that John tends to repeat about this city more than anything else, God is there with his people in the midst of them, and we shall see his face. John then reassures us of the veracity of this book, its truthfulness and its genuineness. And Jesus breaks through to give assurance and blessing. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so overwhelmed, John falls down at the feet of this angel who's delivering him this message to worship him. But the angel responds like we would expect an angel of heaven to respond. And it's the same as the last time that this happened. He said, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. Worship God. The angel makes sure that John knows the timeliness of the things he's writing and how important it is that this message that John is recording gets out into the churches. The angel says, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. The time is at hand. And that brings us to verse 12 in chapter 22, where the words of Jesus again break through to John. He says, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root 
and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's how John wraps up this remarkable revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. In verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. In verse 20, surely... I am coming quickly. Are we living like Christ is coming at any moment? Does our lifestyle match up with that fact? Are your eyes set on him as you run this race? Or have you lost your concentration and let your gaze slip from him? Does the imminent return of Christ excite you or frighten you? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves in relation to the Lord's soon coming. Whether you view the statement, I am coming quickly, as a promise or a threat can give you some sort of indication to your readiness. Jesus gave the church at Ephesus a warning concerning his coming. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. A similar call to repentance falls on the church of Pergamos as a threat. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Both instances, a call for repentance. But it's a different story for the church at Philadelphia. Jesus says to them, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. It reads a little differently there. The declaration of Christ's soon coming falls as a promise and a beacon of hope for the faithful. Where do you stand in relation to his imminent coming? From verse 7 to the end of the chapter, the end of the Bible, the word book is used eight times. Seven of those are directly in relation to the book of Revelation. The last refers to the book of life, and you'll find that one reading through. Three times in the last verses, this book is considered a testimony. Two times, Jesus himself 
heralds it as his testimony, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. Verse 18, for I, now this is John, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things, now this is Jesus, says, surely I am coming quickly. This book is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And as the first sentence in the book points out, it's the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revelation, apocalypsis. This book contains the things that Jesus wants the church as a whole to know about her future, and especially in relation to him. Our present is very uncertain, and even shortly in the future is very uncertain. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow. We don't know what's going to come when we leave this building. But as far as Christ is concerned, our future is set. We know where we're going to be in the end. Our present may be uncertain, but this future of ours is certain. We will dwell with him forever. And there's a comfort to that. You know, knowing that no matter what happens on this side of eternity, we have something special to look forward to. Verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This verse 13 of chapter 22 in Revelation is one of the most remarkable claims that Jesus makes of his own deity. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And of course, we know that Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in that alphabet. Jesus is effectively saying he is the first and the last with all three of these assertions in verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Revelation 21.6 contains these words from the Father. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God the Father said that. In Revelation 1.8 and 1.11, also in 22.13, Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is identifying himself with the Father. All the way back in Isaiah 44, verse 6, it reads, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, that's capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, talking about the Father, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last of the Father. And now Jesus declares, this is my testimony, this is my book, I am the first and the last, and this is the message that I want you to send out into the church. 
I have separated the beginning from the end, and I am coming quickly to wrap everything up. Verses 14 and 15 here lay out a contrast between those who are inside the city and those who are outside the city. None may enter who are impure, who are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those who choose to identify themselves with the world instead of Christ, i.e. this list of sins, will not be permitted in. And we've already seen their future. We've seen where they'll be relegated to, that is, the lake of fire. Um, No doubt it's outside of this perfect city, but it's even further removed than just outside the city. They're outside of the conscious presence of God. They are removed from him in a way that I can't imagine. Verse 14 contains the last of the seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We've been pointing these out as we go along, and this is the conclusion of those. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. Blessed, or happy, is another way to translate that word, are those who do his commandments. You know, we talked about doing his commandments last week a little bit. In John 6, 28, Jesus' disciples ask him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work singular of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, please don't let this confuse you here. We're not talking about a works-based salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. Salvation is the beginning point, and the works flow out of that. We don't work for our own salvation. There are two other references to keeping the commandments of God in Revelation, and both of them are actually directly tied to a faith in Jesus. We'll look at those. Revelation 12, 17. And he, referring to the dragon, Satan, went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Right there in Revelation faith in Christ, and keeping the commandments of God are linked. And there are also at least 10 other references to keeping his commandments just in the writings of John. That is the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Uh, Besides the three references we have in Revelation, there's at least 10 others in his writings. We've got a list for you we'll throw up on the screen, but I'll go through them real quick. John 14, 15, John 14, 21, John 15, 10, there are two references in that verse, 1 John 2, 3, 2, 4, 3, 22, 3, 24, 5, 2, and 5, 3. 
And we'll leave that up for you for a little bit if you want to jot those down. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Very simply. Now, though we aren't saved by works, the one who has come to a genuine faith in Christ will not be burdened by keeping his commandments. It's something you want to do. It's, it doesn't come as a heavy yoke. And I do also want to mention that there's a slight discrepancy here between manuscripts. Um, some of your translations may read, blessed are they that wash their robes, that they may have the right to come to the tree of life. That particular one is ASV, but a couple others read that way as well. There's an earlier reference in Revelation 7.14 to the tribulation saints who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And we know that the end result of that washing of their robes is access to the tree of life and entrance to the city. So there's no problem of continuity, uh, whichever translation or whichever manuscript your translation pulls from. Whichever translation you pick, the result is the same. And both of these things are going to happen. We're going to wash our robes. And you know, if we are born again, we're going to keep his commandments. And that's going to be something that we want to do. But for what it's worth, I tend to slightly favor the King James rendering of blessed are those who do his commandments. So you can look into that if it piques your interest. Verse 15 but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So let's not get distracted from what is really being put before us here in verses 14 and 15, this contrast. Here we are at the end having entered into the eternal state of affairs. And there are still only two types of people, those inside the city and those outside the city, the redeemed and those who are not redeemed. There are those who are washed in the blood of Christ and those whose sins stain their garments. The only question that will matter in the end is who do you say Jesus is? That's your whole eternity hangs on that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good man? Is he a good teacher? Is he a good example to follow? Or is he even a prophet? Who do you say Jesus is? Or is he the son of God? Is he your Savior and Lord, your personal Savior and Lord? Eternity hangs on that question. But outside are dogs. Dogs is a very Jewish expression, and it's not talking about animals. The term is used several other times in Scripture to describe various types of sinners or outsiders. The term dogs was used for sexually perverted people, for unfaithful teachers, and for Gentiles 
If you turn back to chapter 21, verse 8 in Revelation, you'll notice that that list of sins and sinners is mostly the same as this list in chapter 22. You've got cowardly and unbelieving that are left out of this second list. But instead of dogs, in the first list, it says abominable. And no doubt the dogs are like the abominable. There's something morally reprehensible about who he's calling dogs. Um, The dog, the animal, was considered unclean to Jews. Since the rest of this list is repeated, we'll just hit it real quick in passing. He says, but outside are dogs and sorcerers. And you may re- remember that this is translated from the Greek pharmakia. This one is specifically pharmakos, which refers to occult magic, especially to the practice of altering one's state of consciousness through the use of some sort of drug. And that's usually to open yourself up to other spiritual entities, spiritual places that you're not supposed to have access to. And that's a very dangerous and altogether prohibited practice. And sexually immoral, from the Greek pornos, referring to any sexual practice outside of marriage. And murderers, that one's pretty self-explanatory. I think we all got that one. And idolaters, anyone who puts something or someone else above the Lord God. And just in case we're feeling a little self-righteous here, he includes whoever loves and practices a lie. If that's your identity, you're going to be outside of the city. We have to identify ourselves with Christ. I've heard that the average American tells about 200 lies a day. That blows us away at first, but somebody asks you, hey, how are you doing this morning? Oh, fine. I'm good. Well, (laughs) I hope that's true, but it's not always. Definitely not always. Now, we're born-again Christians, right? Our number's got to be way down, maybe 150 or so. I don't know. Now, hopefully, hopefully we do better than that. The average American tells 200 lies a day. It's interesting to me that the term dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters can all relate to ancient pagan practices uh, in their worship of their pagan gods. All of those practices can relate back thousands of years ago. But each one of those are all too prevalent today. John was not just writing to his contemporary situation. He was, but the truth contained here reaches all the way into our culture in 2023. And we are, as Christians, to be distinct from that culture. You know, that's the call. Outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Jesus, again speaking, I, Jesus, have sent my angel 
to testify to you these things in the churches. This is one of the first instances of airmail. <laughs> We've got airmail here. I, Jesus, this is the only time in the New Testament and only time in the Bible that Jesus identifies himself this way. I, Jesus. That makes me kind of perk my ears up and want to listen to what he has to say here. He has sent this testimony to John's contemporary churches, yes. But it reaches so much further than that. This revelation was given to the church as the body of Christ as a whole. Not just in John's day, throughout the church age, reaching all the way to our day and beyond. To all believers throughout the church age, Jesus has sent this testimony, which was given to him by God the Father. He sends it out to the churches, and he says, this is what you need to know about your future concerning me. All believers throughout the church age should digest and should keep the words of this prophecy. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. You know, just so there's no confusion as to who is speaking here, he identifies himself even further. Here he identifies himself as the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah, the root and offspring of David. You know, there's a bunch of weird ideas going around, and they've been going around. It's nothing new that Jesus is one of the ascended masters, you know, in Buddhism, um, that he comes from the Tibetan mountain people. I don't, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. This tells us Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And we know exactly where he came from. He came from the tribe of Judah, out of Israel. I am the root and the offspring of David. At the point when John is writing this, most of the believers in this list of these seven churches were Gentile believers. But the Lord still loves his people Israel. And so he identifies himself with them here. Christ was already called the root of David in Revelation 5.5. But now he includes the fact that he's also David's offspring. Now, here's the real question. How can one man be both the ancestor and the descendant of someone? There's only one answer he would have to be the pre-existent one. Coming before David, David comes from Christ, and Christ comes from David. That's remarkable. And a cursory reading through this, you don't pick up on that. Jesus is both David's Lord and David's son. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 22, real quick, verses 41 
through 46, and you can read along with me. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. The Pharisees knew that Christ was descended from David. He, Jesus, said to to them, the Pharisees, How then does David, in the Spirit, so this is recorded in their scripture, they knew it was inspired, How then does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he David's son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him. So he really got him good with this one. In their culture, you certainly wouldn't call your son Lord. It would be like us calling our son Sir. We just don't do that. And the Pharisees knew the answer to Jesus' challenge. They just didn't like the answer. The only way David would call his son Lord is if he was the preexistent one, if Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus also identifies himself here in Revelation as the bright and morning star. This is the final title of Christ in Scripture. And this is the only instance that this specific title is used of Christ. Back in Revelation 2.28, Christ promised the morning star to the overcomers, but he used an entirely different Greek word there. Here in chapter 22, the adjective bright, lampros, is also added. That's the same word that was used to describe the bright garments of an angel and the bright garments of the saints. The bright and morning star. He is here identifying himself as the unique bright and morning star. The significance of this title is underscored by the fact that a similar name is found in the Old Testament, but it's not in relation to Christ. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, we find the only usage of the name Lucifer, and no doubt the same as that serpent of old, Satan. The Hebrew word for Lucifer is Hillel, which in many English translations is rendered day star. It's it's the Hebrew kind of equivalent to morning star. Now, both of these titles, Hillel in the Hebrew, referring to Satan, and Orthrinos in the Greek for Christ, that is the bright and morning star, are used only once in scripture. Both of these titles are distinct in their usages. We can come to the conclusion that in using this specific title of himself, Jesus is declaring that he is the true bright and morning star whose coming would herald the dawn of eternal day, not Satan. Although that is the promise of Satan, isn't it? But he can't deliver on it. He cannot provide the new day. 
This is a reminder to the Lord's people throughout the church age that we should keep watch through the night because his coming signals the beginning of eternity, a new day for us. Satan tried to exalt himself above the true bright and morning star. He wanted to be the bright and morning star, but he couldn't. Christ is asserting here, I am the bright and morning star. Nobody else. And, you know, this, this makes us think about the promises that Satan makes to everybody. You know, I can make you rich. I can make you famous. And I can give you everything that you want in this world. You know, this is your new day, in effect. Satan makes that promise over and over. In fact, that's what he led with in the garden. I can give you a new day but he cannot deliver on that promise. And he deceives so many people. And it's sad to watch. Come up with an empty cistern, something that won't hold water. It does not satisfy what Satan offers. Christ is the only one that can satisfy in that way. True satisfaction. I'm not talking about fleeting pleasure. I'm talking about an eternity staring into his eyes. You know, another cool thing about God being eternal, each one of us can spend as long as we want alone with Jesus because there's no end to the days that we'll spend there. You can sit and talk with Jesus, hang out with him for as long as you want. Nobody's going to tell you, hey, get out of there, it's my turn. You know? We've got unlimited time to spend with him. That's pretty exciting. Keep watch through the night because his coming signals the beginning of eternity for us. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come, whoever desires. Let him take the water of life freely. This invitation has two parts of it that ultimately work together. There is a call for Christ to come to the world and a call for the world to come to Christ. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. This is a plea to Christ. The Holy Spirit and the bride, which is the redeemed in the holy city, Cry out to Jesus, come. And no doubt that cry reaches all the way to today. You know, the Holy Spirit lives within the believer. We cry for Jesus to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever hears the book of the the prophecy of this book, And truly hears, not just listens to, but hears with the heart. Whoever that is will be drawn to cry out, come, Lord Jesus. That's the natural outflow of the believer when he or she hears. 
that Jesus is coming soon. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, this is a call to the world saying, come to Christ. There's no prerequisite condition for your acceptance in Christ. Come as you are. Christ does the perfecting. We can't do that before we get to him. It's like washing your car in the driveway and then going to the car wash. It doesn't make sense. Just go to Jesus. He does the sanctifying. He does the cleaning. Come as you are. Whoever desires. You can't worry about what you look like on the inside or the outside. You will be accepted. Whoever desires. There's not a typo here in God's word. Oh, well, he wouldn't want me. I'm way too messed up. He probably didn't mean it when he said whoever. Because, you know, he might get a lemon like me. And sometimes as we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, we'll tend to get in this place where we think he did get a lemon when he got me. You know, I know he didn't sign up for this. But he did know exactly what he was getting into when he laid down his life for you. Your sins come as no surprise to him. Do you know that he already knows every sin that you will ever commit? And he knew it when he was dying on the cross, when he was suffering there. He did it for each and every one of our sins. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And how can one take this water of life? In John 4.10, Jesus says this to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. How do you take of this water of life? You need only to ask him. He will give you this water freely. And the Greek there, freely, it's undeservedly. Without cost, yes, but undeservedly, without merit. Without cost or merit, Jesus gives this water of life. It's that picture that God was setting up with the rock in the wilderness. When Israel was wandering around the wilderness, there was this rock that followed them around and gave them water. The first time they came to this rock, God ordered Moses, strike the rock and it will burst forth water for you and the whole nation. Moses did so. He struck the rock in front of the the congregation of people, and it did give them water. The second time Moses went to God and said, God, we need water. God said, okay, go to the rock and speak to it. What did Moses do? Biggest mistake he's ever made. He 
He went to the rock and he struck it again. He did not simply speak to it the second time. That was supposed to be a picture of Jesus. We learn from Paul in the New Testament that that rock was Christ. Smitten once for our sins doesn't need to be struck again, only spoken to. And the water of life flows from him freely. Moses kind of messed up that picture that God was setting up. And he paid a penalty for it. He couldn't go into the promised land. Definitely the biggest mistake that he made in his life. I think he'll get another shot. I think he's going to be one of the two witnesses. So he'll have a a redemptive (laughs) chance there, maybe. Verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. This is a sobering warning. And it is, it's a warning. That's what it is. This is the big warning of Revelation. And I'm sure everybody was anticipating getting to these two verses. And the question is usually, is it talking about the book of Revelation? Or is it talking about the Bible as a whole? You know, what are we looking at here? Well, there are two specific warnings here. Don't add to the word of God and don't take away from the word of God. Jesus warned in Matthew 16, in verses 5 through 12, to take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in verse 12, it's explained that he was referring to their erroneous doctrines. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What did the Pharisees do? Well, the Pharisees heaped up laws for the people to keep that God didn't institute. They, you know, they demanded more from the people than what God required. What did the Sadducees do? Well, the Sadducees said that only the first five books matter, and you don't really have to pay attention to any of the rest. They detracted from some of the laws that God did institute. They took away from his word. Jesus warns against that. Of course, Jesus didn't warn of the Pharisees and Sadducees altering the book of Revelation, right? Because it wasn't written yet. So God is protective of his word as a whole. That's established. And in Deuteronomy 4.2, that also contains a warning from Moses that has this same stern tone to it. You shall not add to the word which I command you nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. That related specifically to the writings of Moses, the first five books. So Revelation is certainly not the only part of God's revealed word that he's protective over. We know that. So with this in mind, 
Let's take a look at verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, it says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 19 says, If anyone takes away from the book of this prophecy, it gets us both ways. The prophecy of this book and the book of this prophecy. We're looking at both the book of Revelation and the revealed word of God in a more general capacity. You can't escape the fact that this is a warning against altering Revelation and the entirety of God's revealed word. And I want you to think about it for just a minute. John writing this is a very old man. He's already well above the life expectancy for that time. He's writing Revelation, and he's sending it out to the churches that knew him personally. They knew who John was. And tradition tells us that when John left Patmos, he went back to Ephesus to live out the last few of his days. If someone had come along trying to claim that they had found lost chapters of John's writing, you know, it would have been easy to pick them out as a fraud. They knew John. They knew he had just passed away. And you're not bringing us new revelation from John. This is your own devising. That would have been easy to pick out. This exhortation to stay true to the book surely is not limited to the book of Revelation because additions to just this book would have actually been pretty easy to spot. It's overarching the whole revealed word of God. It's a bookend to God's written word. And the great thing for us is this. If someone comes along claiming to have a word from God, as they like to say, and it doesn't match up with what's already in black and white in your Bible, you shouldn't believe it. It's that simple. If it doesn't match up with the revealed word of God, don't believe it. Because this already has everything you need to know. Everything God wants you to know about him right now is contained in your Bible. Now, we'll be learning things forever in eternity with him. But everything you need to know right now is in your Bible. And everything that's necessary for salvation and godly living is contained in your Bible. The entirety of human history is contained between these two covers. The entirety of human history. There is no period of time yet to be recorded. It's all laid out in the Bible. You know, every generation has not had this same luxury. If you were living before Christ, you only had the Old Testament to refer to. And yes, it points to Jesus, but it's still just a shadow of the substance, which is Christ. Genesis starts us before man was created. It says, in the beginning. And in Hebrew, that refers to the vanishing point. And we'll be talking about that more in a couple of weeks. From the dawn of man, 
the Old Testament takes us through the flood, through the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the history of Israel and Judah, the captivity, and so forth. Then you have what are called the silent years, those roughly 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. But it surprises some people that these are not actually silent years. We have them recorded in the Bible. History is told in advance in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel records the history of these 400 so-called silent years. Then the New Testament picks up at John the Baptist heralding the coming of Jesus Christ, this Jewish Messiah. The Gospels and Acts take us through the incarnation of Christ and the formation of the church. The epistles are instructions on Christian living, and Revelation deals first with the church age in second and third chapters, then the rapture, tribulation, second coming of Christ, the judgments, the kingdom age, the new creation, and looks into the eternal state and the eternal city. There's nothing else to be revealed. From the beginning to eternity with God resides in between these two covers. You don't need anyone else to come to you saying that they have a new word from God. You already have it. Now, there are two specific warnings laid out in verses 18 and 19. The first warning If you add to the word of God, he will add the plagues that are written in this book unto you. The plagues, that is the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. If you take away from the word of God, he will take your part from the book of life. He will take your part away from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book, no doubt the promises of the book. That is a more grave warning than even the first. Because I I do believe that people in the tribulation will have the opportunity to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. There may be an opportunity, if you have these plagues added to you, to still come to Christ. Maybe. If your part is taken out of the book of life, There's no more opportunity. That is a grave, grave warning to anyone. And unfortunately, this is way too common. You know, you think that some of these people spouting about have not read verses 18 and 19. Because if they did, they wouldn't be saying the things that they're saying. And this even happens in the paraphrases the paraphrases are not translations, okay? The paraphrases are what the paraphrasers want you to learn about the Bible. Translations take the original language and they translate it into our language. It's much better. So get you a translation, not a paraphrase. Moving on. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Sound familiar? It should. This is the testimony of Jesus 
and he's coming rapidly. Once these things start moving, they will come to a rapid conclusion. John writes, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. What were the first words of man to God that are recorded in the Bible? Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The first words of man to God. And now these last words of man to God. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You see the dramatic shift in tone? What changed? From that first embarrassing moment over Adam's sin to this plea that Jesus returned for his people, what changed? During this whole biblical narrative, we've seen God's redemptive plan unfold. And it is now consummated in the reuniting of God with his people. No more shame, no more guilt over sin, just uninterrupted fellowship between the creator and his creation. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I want you to ask yourself, can that be your prayer today? It should be. If you're living in Christ, this should be your heart's urgent plea. Come, Lord Jesus. If you're living in sin, your natural inclination may be, hold on just a second until I can get some things straightened out. You know, don't come right now, just tomorrow, maybe next week. Let me get my life together first. What a wonderful thing to be able to say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I'm convinced that the best part about living under grace is being able to say perpetually, come, Lord Jesus. Look, if you mess up and you're living under grace, you can't let that run you. You can't let it crush you if you slip up. If you're living under grace, forgiveness is on the other side of you asking for it. All you have to do is ask and you're forgiven, and you're set back on the path. And what did Paul say? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Of course not. That's not the point. And there is no such thing as cheap grace. The price for God not punishing you in the way that you deserve, which is death, the price for that is the blood of his son. He's already paid that price, but it was the most expensive thing in the universe. You are. 
You are the most expensive thing in the universe, the most precious to God. How do we determine the worth of something? My grandpa always told me what somebody will pay for it. How much is an old Nintendo 64? I wouldn't pay anything for it. But somebody might pay good money for it. The worth of that is determined by how much somebody will pay for it. You are priceless. There were no lengths that God would not go to, up to and including sacrificing his son to purchase you, to redeem you from the lake of fire, which was your natural destiny, because we are all sinners. Forgiveness is just on the other side of you asking for it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is also a, a typical salutation in many epistles. You can go through, actually, and you can pick out the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It was typical of this day. And John uses it in almost all of his writings. I think Third John is the only one that doesn't use this salutation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And what a fitting way to conclude this revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, we've, we've come through this and we've seen eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine burnished, that is molten brass. You know, the sword of his word coming out of his mouth. We've seen him slaughter. We've seen him judge. We've seen him trim the wicks of the churches, the lampstands, caring for his churches. In the New Testament as a whole, especially in the Gospels, we see the Lamb of God. We see the Lamb. In Revelation, we get to see the Lion. With the judgment, though, there is grace, there is mercy. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I think that is probably also a plea to all these churches. I don't want the judgment to come on you. Take heed to these things. Keep the words of this prophecy. Because I want the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to pour over you. Not the judgment. The best thing about this whole part is that it's already been done what needs to be done for grace to be imputed to us. There's nothing more that, that needs to be done. All you have to do is make a decision that you want that grace and come to Jesus as a sinner. He provides the Savior. It is the best deal going. Let's wrap up our study this morning in a word of prayer. Please bow your head and your hearts with me. Thank mm-hmm. you.